Hello, everyone. My name is Ian Rowe. And I'm Nike Fajors. And welcome to The Invisible Men, where we make the achievements of incredible men invisible no more. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of The Invisible Men. My name is Ian Rowe, and I'm a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Nike Fajors, a member of the Leadership Network at AEI. And uh, Nike, so good to see you. And as, as our viewers know, that we, we, we uh, run The Invisible Men to tell stories of black excellence, uh, individuals who you, you know, may not know normally, but who are doing some amazing things and uh, people who exemplify excellence. And we want to just talk to them to demystify how it is that they got to where they are in life. And uh, today we have the inimitable Eugene Robinson, a Renaissance uh, journalist, author, musician, Stanford grad, MMA fighter, editor-in-large at Aussie Media. Uh, Eugene, what, what is it that you do not do? Uh, I'm a really bad uh, graphic artist. <laughs> I, I, I could not draw a cat for you to save my life. So okay. most people on the planet probably don't know how to draw a cat well. So, but Eugene, welcome to welcome to the Invisible Men. Hey, thank you, thank you for having me. And you, you got to get that middle initial in there so people don't confuse me with the the Washington Post cat. He's H. <laughs> He's Eugene H and I'm Eugene S. So, oh, <laughs> yeah, but you could take him down in an MMA fight, right? Very, very easily. But I figured, you know, after a certain point, I mean, he and I are connected in social media because I used to get his checks from NPR. And I'm like, hey, <laughs> what do you want me to do with these checks? He goes, ah, well, I don't send them to me, I guess. All right, okay. But uh, uh, he's like 10 years older than me. So it's got to be kind of a, a drag. And he's a journalist. So it's got to be kind of a drag to have people ask him, so what about MMA? because <laughs> nobody nobody it never goes the other way nobody ever says to me oh i read your piece on paul i get a lot of his hate mail that I right. well he won a pulitzer didn't he he did win a pulitzer right. he's like look yeah. i want a pulitzer what are you talking about MFA? <laughs> ah, that's right 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 exactly right so uh well it's so good to have you so you know so uh you know we like to start off uh invisible men just by asking you just to tell us a little bit about your story before you became who you are today like what was it that when you were growing up, you may have had an experience that defined you, that that uh, led you to start thinking in a new way about your life or what you had the ability to achieve. Uh, tell us a little bit. I, I, I've always, you know, it's interesting. I had had a friend, my college, uh, my college roommate, and he had come. We had driven across country at one point. The plan was to, for him to show up in New York and we're going to drive back to Stanford across country. And he had never been. He was a lifelong California, Southern California guy, Orange County in actual fact. Um, and he came to New York. And as we were driving back, I, I said, so what did, what did you make of, of New York? Did you as a California? Because, you know, I never made my, I'm still, I've never really made my peace with California as a New Yorker. And he said, well, it's kind of an interesting place. You know, everybody's got like a, like a hustle, <laughs> you know. And like, what do you, what do you, what, what do you mean? Exactly, you know, like, you know, define your terms. And he said, just there just seems to be this kind of. And I, he started to describe what I think is kind of really particular to the, to an immigrant experience. And out of a country of immigrants, you know, New York is maybe more so than others. But that everybody, there's an, there's an angle that you're working, and that this has been a constant and continual. Um, 
feature of my life. I mean, I remember being 10 years old in Flatbush and, you know, when it snowed, some kids was like, oh, yeah, you know, it's snowing. Let's take a sled to the park. And I was like, yeah, I'll do that right after I get that shovel and mm -hmm. shovel all these walks on the block for $10 a walk. <laughs> you know, I'll be glad to play with you after I do that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and then, of course, you know, people saw me making money and started to horn in on my my, <laughs> my action. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I, I've always, and, it, you know, I remember being five years old and my great-grandmother, she was in New Rochelle and going to the laundromat and uh, when people actually did that a lot, and I said, you know, Nana, why don't you, you can get a laundry, uh, washing machine for the house. She goes, oh, they're very expensive. I go, you know, I, I got to buy my Nana a washing machine and a dryer. This is ridiculous going wow. to the laundromat. So I've always had this idea that there was some sort of, some sort of connection between things that people did, you know, with, even if it was just losing teeth in the tooth fairy, giving you money and, and, and money and, and having your life be somewhat easier. Uh, not necessarily, fulfillment was never the issue. The idea was if you're going to be alive, you had to do something. So, um, and if you had to do something, you might as well do something that, you know, gave other people pleasure. So, wow. So you've always had this kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah. And, you know, at one point, you know, you get to that point in high school where you're too old to really be at home, <laughs> you know, and I remember like thinking, I, I, you know, I know I'm going to go to college, but I got to, you know, I'm a, I'm a junior in high school. I, I, can't, I can't keep living at home. This is ridiculous. And uh, uh, how did you know you were going to college? Oh, it, it was just uh, it, it was it was a bridge to for me. Um, I mean, exactly as it should be for many people to to adult living. And there were things I wanted to study. Um, and uh, and I also wanted to I also want to get out of New York. And I saw that as being the most reasonable way to do that. Um, and I mean, it was never any question. It was, you know, I hear people say nowadays, well, you know, college is not for everybody. I was, it was never in my mind any question at all um, about that being the kind of experience that I wanted to have. California was new. Um, everybody in my high school ended up going to, you know, to the Ivy Leagues. But it just seemed kind of wasteful to me to take the four years and spend it two and a half hours from <laughs> from home right. you know i wanted to do i wanted to go someplace where i probably would want to go anyway and uh to visit and just you know if i hated it it'd be four years and i could go back to new york and as you see i've, I've never been back to new york so right. yeah I, I i i i didn't i wasn't honest with myself about who it is that i really was and until until probably midway through the first uh, quarter at stanford because I showed up to Stanford to be a biologist. Um, and I was sitting at Chem 101 class, and I was like, nah, nah. I mean, I went to Stuyvesant High School, and it's a math and science high school. So I spent I four Tech, years. I went to Brooklyn Tech, by the way. Okay, there you go. So I, you know. I went to safety school, so I, you know. I went <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what I tell my friends who go to Bronx Science. You know, how's it feel to go to the second best school <laughs> in, in Manhattan? So, right. you know, I, uh, I mean, I... I don't know. I, I didn't. Uh, I, I figured I, I did the math and science thing and proved to myself I could for four years at Stuyvesant. I didn't want to. I didn't want my college career to be the same. So I jettisoned the biology thing. And then I, I just kept ignoring the obvious. You know, <laughs> it's like, like 
I've been writing forever. I've been getting published forever. I sent my first query letter to, to Esquire as soon as I could write. Like when I was nine years old when I sent it. I still have it. The letter, I mean, they, wow. rejected, they rejected me, but it was like, you know, nobody had ever, my stepfather was a journalist and, you know, um, an award-winning journalist, but it wasn't like, I got no career advice at all from him. He was just, I mean, it seemed like he did what he did because his father did it and, you know, he didn't really like it. He he was an inveterate reporter, and he's gone on to win the, the Pulitzer as well. For the, he, he worked on the Rampart series at the L.A. Times. Oh, wow! Um, but uh, he, you know, he he's had a conflicted relationship with it. You know, where it's like I I decided I need to be an editor, so I didn't have to suffer the way reporters suffered. Right? I could write when I chose, and I didn't have people really ripping apart my stuff. <laughs> Because I remember him calling in changes and, you know, arguing with the editors about what was going to happen with his piece. I was like, I don't want that to be me. And so then I went through each of the stages of, of media, like I did, you know, in front of the camera, behind the camera, you know, uh, daily news. Uh, and I finally settled on magazines as being personality wise and temperamental, temperamentally speaking, the thing that I was best suited for. So. And where where did the music journey? Where did it begin? Where did it where did it launch? Um, it, the freshman year of college, I played sax in some group called Al and the X's, which was a, a short lived thing. And then I have to credit the New York City Department of Parks because <laughs> um, I had a summer job before I, I came out, and it was one of these really weird city jobs. They, they loved me there. Like I did the summer before I got to Stanford, I worked there. And then I came back. They said, well, when you come back next summer, let us know. I came back and they said, well, did you like what you did last year? I go, no, not really. And we were mobile recreation groups, but there had been no pre-roll. So we would show up and I had a, a team of people that we show up in parks and provide recreation. The idea was to turn parks back into parks, but there were no kids in these parks, you know? So um, I said, well, what would you do if you could? I said, I don't know, something in, in an office. They go, great. And they found a place out in Queens for me to work, an office. But as it turned out, it was an office in an office building with a group that had nothing to do with the New York City Department of Parks. And I had one guy I was working with. And as far as I could tell, my job was to cover for him. <laughs> I stopped, at, you know, after the first three days, I was like, well, what do you want me to do now? Well, what should I do now? And then he just, then I realized, one, I needed to stop asking. And two, just cover for him. He goes, if Simonian calls, let him know I'm out and then call me at this number. <laughs> you know, this is before cell phones. And that was it. And so I said, well, if I'm going to sit here eight hours a day, every day, I wow. might as well do something. So I started publishing a magazine, start working on the first edition of the Birth of Tragedy magazine. And as part of that, I knew I also wanted to start a band. And so I came back to Stanford and started a uh, uh, hardcore punk band called Whipping Boy. So... So that's that's where that started. Well, that's obvious that you just started a hardcore punk band. I mean, that, well, I've been listening. I've been listening to punk since '77. You know, so going to shows. You know, I was doing two things. Like I would go to a, a, a punk show like on Friday, and then Saturday night I would go. I mean, I used to be a disco dance instructor, right? So, so I was going to like Studio Fifty Four in New York, New York, and Xenon, and oh all these, God. all these, all, right? Back. <laughs> Right, right. So late 70s. And then when punk rock hit, I go, I got to check it out. And so then, you know, I'd go either to a disco or, a, you know, a punk show. So it took about four years for me to go, you know what, I could do this. And so that's, 
that's how I got to the hardcore punk thing. So. CBGB's part of C- your CBGB's, uh, Max's Kansas City, uh, Great Gildersleeves. Um, right. So Nike's like, what? What are these two guys talking about? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, I, lived, I lived in New York. If you CBGB's, I, I remember that one. Okay. All right. All right. Well, everybody remembers Studio Fifty Four. But yeah, you know the funny thing about Studio Fifty Four is, I thought, I thought. They, they they kept let, letting me in because I was so cool. And then finally I figured out that they were letting me in because they thought I was dealing drugs. <laughs> they just like, he's a young black guy. He's probably got drugs. Let him in. I, I thought it was just because I look cool, you know, because, you know, I get in and everybody would be asking me for things. I said, I I I, I, no, I, no, I don't have any. What do you, what, what is that? I don't even know what that is. So, uh, but at least I got to get in and dance, which was my thing. So. Got it. So it sounds okay. So your journey is a fascinating one. How, how did you? Because it sounds like you were in worlds like punk rock, studio fit How how what was it like? Often probably being the lone black person or or unique from that perspective. How did that? How did that shape your experiences? Well, disco. I, I was not at all unique. I mean, there there were plenty of uh, black folks in uh, in the disco scene. Yeah, so that was not strange yeah. at all. I mean, I, I don't know that many of them were sixteen, but <laughs> yeah, no. Um, but uh, <laughs> that was that that was fun. You know, having people try to have sex with you all the time was is a, is a nice place to be when you're sixteen. Yeah, <laughs> I have nothing bad to say about disco. Um, but the, uh, the the punk thing that was. I mean, I, I, you know, I was a I was a non non factor you know, at that point. I mean, uh, there's a friend of mine, Adam Smyer, um, and he. It turns out he was one year behind me at Stuyvesant, and I was in a in a men's room at an art gallery in San Francisco, and I hear somebody say Eugene, and I turn around, and I go yeah, and he goes it's me, Adam, and I, you know, it's just, the context was completely different. So he uh, he he oops he ended up um, coming out west as well. And he's actually he, he's written a book called Knucklehead, which is a great, great book. And it's gotten him on. Uh, he ended up doing some big symposium in South Africa on, on the strength of his book. Um, but uh, he, he said, yeah, man, you went to those shows and I, I, I was into them. He's a musician as well. and plays bass. He goes, I was into it, but I was just too afraid, too afraid to go, you know. Um, so I didn't I didn't ever go. Um, and I never had any any sense of fear. But it could also be because I was bodybuilding. So I've been competitive. Add that to the list, Ian. Yeah, I was a, I was com- competitive uh, competitive bodybuilder in, in high school, and I was working out at this uh, this gym in Ridgewood, um, the the Olympia gym, and um, so I was you know, and I've been taking martial arts since I was what, 10, 11. So it's not like I, I, I wasn't looking for, I wasn't looking for pals, you know, I just want to see the music. And uh, I wasn't really especially concerned with anybody trying to hurt me since I was easily stronger, faster and more able, you know, Joey Ramone was not going to be beating anybody up, you know? So, um, so, well, one more question on the music. So you mentioned, which I never knew this, you, you played saxophone a bunch. Obviously, you, you put the sax down to become, you know, a, a premier vocalist. What was, was there a transition there or just the sax kind of went away? 
Well, uh, a couple of things. I took violin. That was my first instrument. Violin, and then I made a detour into banjo. <laughs> and, and, uh, and then um, I stopped those, and then I, I was terrible at the sax, so that's kind of why. <laughs> I really enjoyed it, but I was not very good. And then I did. I, I picked up a bass and then a little bit of keyboard in, uh, in Whipping Boy, and, uh, and then ultimately I met musicians who were good enough where I didn't have to play. I could just communicate my musical ideas, and they could play what it was I had in my head. So it, uh, And that especially came to fruition with Oxbow. Uh, where Nico Winner, the guitar player, is just like, I could sing something and he would play it. And I go, ah, that's it. So, um, one, one more question in the music vein, then we'll shift. So, if Oxbow were to launch today, do you think the trajectory of the band, because of digital rights and the way the SoundCloud, do you think do you think the experience of the band and it, its 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 velocity and popularity would be much different from when you did launch? I, I, I don't I don't have a sense uh, of that, really. I mean, a part of our success now is that we have this legacy thing happening that um, and a length and breadth of career that has made it such that you can't it's hard to compete. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, the bands that we've played with since we started and we're talking about Oxbow now since 1988. Um, are, 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 some of them are, are legendary, right? And that, and now the producer that we work with, who's won multiple Grammys, um, including he was nominated for uh, 2010 or 2007 for one of the records he did with us, plus Kurt Elling, plus The Shins, and we lost to Amy Winehouse's people. Oh wow! I mean, this is you know this is this is not likely to happen with it with a new band though he works with new music new, new musicians as well so I, I it's hard for me to tell it's hard for me to tell i mean i know i i mean i'm still i'm involved with music and i have lots of young musicians and new people people coming to me kind of and it's a harder road to to go but at the same time i was setting up tours on the telephone and sending letters <laughs> You know, it's not social media has been a great boon in a lot of ways for music, uh, at least for li the live portion of it. Not so much for getting paid for your music, but, at the, you know, if you can tour and have people show up to your shows by virtue of your SoundCloud stuff. And there are people coming off of SoundCloud into multi-million dollar careers as well. So there are a lot, you know, the, the, the pipeline has gotten a lot bigger. You, you know, the record labels control so little now. Yeah, I, I imagine if you were a good band now, it's probably a good time for you. So, Eugene, you mentioned bodybuilding um, and sort of some of your athletic pursuits and martial arts. Uh, I know you've spent a bunch of years uh, you know, commentating and reporting on and competing on occasion in MMA fights, but I know BJJ is something you got real passion about. You know, I know the sport and I know combat sports well, but I'll be honest with you, I still don't totally get the absolute love that people have for BJJ and the loyalty they have to it. Can you, can you help our, our, our viewers understand what's so special about it? I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I found that people who are into grappling typically, I mean, all of the wrestlers I knew initially when I started say when I was wrestling for a little bit in high school, they were all like, it's like math guys or engineers or subsequently became engineers and their worldview was, you know, framed by a desire to control, you know, 
the, the, the natural world around them. And I think grappling, the grappling arts are very much about uh, control, right? Um, in, a, in a way that say something like Muay Thai or boxing is, is not necessarily, uh, not, necessary, not necessarily the case with those. So I think that um, um, the idea with grappling and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu as a grappling art is to, you know, take, you know, aggressive maybe probably hostile action and activity and just break it down into its you know base elements and control all of it um and i, I don't know if you pay attention to, to the internet there's uh oklahoma 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 sooners wide receiver who just got into a, a scuffle with some guys in the bathroom in oklahoma and the guys are very much smaller than he and i could see he was working with his animal brain dealing with these men who were smaller than he was and like, come on, you know, go get out of there. There had been some scuffle and he's trying to shoo them out. And his friend is confuses their passivity for maybe fear. And he pushes one of the guys, which of course at that point sets it off. And these guys were MMA guys. And of course with a wrestling base, they say they're not wrestlers, but they have a grappling base and they, beat the slop out of these two football players in the bathroom. And, you know, people look at it and say, oh, it's this kind of violence. It's, you know, this beastly. But I look at it as, you know, an attempt, an effective attempt to control chaos around them. Now, maybe emotionally you get into the the art of martial arts. At that point, they should be able to say, nah, you know, you've, I, I should rise above this and just leave the bathroom. It's easier to do that than than what happened. But I had a Russian friend who was uh, in Russia back when it was the Soviet Union. They would do these combines and they would take all the kids to a gym at the age of five and they would run uh, uh, athletic aptitude test. And whatever, whatever the coaches would look and, you know, that one's a basketball player, that one's this, that was a wrestler. That, and they picked him for judo, given his, he was kind of short and, and stocky. So he figured his low center of gravity. And so at the age of five, judo, like six days a week, every day until he got to high school and came to America. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that, I, I, I think that being prepared to deal with, um, an unpleasant world, it makes a lot of good sense to me. Um, and so for me, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is very, very much a part of that. And it, it really does smooth out uh, my interactions with other men, <laughs> you know, which can be, if, if, if you don't have a basis in martial arts, can sometimes be fraught, like I write about in the fight book, you know. I mean, even if it's polite society, at the same time, you know, if a voice gets raised, you really have to you know, you, you have to take stock of all of your options. And if you don't have that as an option, you're going to respond out of fear. It's not always the best place to be. I, I hated that feeling inside myself enough to begin at the age of, uh, you know, 10 to do something about it. And that's to study martial arts and to learn how to defend myself. So... Very good. Well, and, we I, and, and, and I tell you, I tell you honestly, you know, raising my kids in martial arts has been really interesting because they have no experience of somebody coming at them with hostile intent and not having anything to draw on, not having any arrows to pull out their quiver. <laughs> you know, they just, <laughs> you know, I mean, I told I don't know if you had that story where we decided, you know, my kids have all gone to like smart kid schools, right? You remember Ruby? And I said, well, we're going to, let's send Ruby to just a normal camp, 
she's some other people she knows are going there and she's walking across the field at this you know just a kid's camp just like you know nothing no special school for bright kids just a kid's camp and she's walking across the field by herself and so this group of boys are there and she was maybe about 11 or 10 and these like 12 or 13 year old boys were there and you know their animal brains are working they see her walking by herself and one guy says oh well, like kind of watch this and he he takes a run at her and run for no reason runs at her and jumps to kick at her and you know i mean <laughs> ruby was training three days a week at that point she sidesteps arm drags him down gets a knee on the belly and goes what are you doing <laughs> and he's like uh okay he's oh you know kung fu and she's like <laughs> and she just kind of shook her head and kept on walking and that it never happened again so again it's it's mm-hmm. been i didn't have that the first time i was called on to uh to defend myself i had nothing to draw on and it was not a not a great feeling so very good well we've got we've got a section of every episode that we call the speed round where we we ask we, we put in front of you a couple of individuals or philosophies ask you to pick one and tell us why. So we'll start with uh, Martin or Malcolm. Well, that's a, a two-part question, actually. As a, a, of course, and you know this is going to be the case. As a younger man, of course, Malcolm, right? Um, it, uh, it, it, it uh, resonated well with, you know, the 15-year-old that I was in New York City at the time. Um, but a, 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 it was probably very easy to be Malcolm <laughs> in New York City in the 60s, right? I mean, if you start to know a little bit about life as you get older and you start to think about how heavy it was that in Selma, <laughs> that you would be, you know, Martin in Selma in, in the American South, it's like, uh, hey, man, that's that's an order of magnitude um, different, especially with, you know, this uh, a spouse philosophy of nonviolence, right? It's like, uh, I'm... <laughs> It's it, it's it, if you've ever been in the scene where you've been attacked by a mob, and sadly I I, I was there I was there once. Uh, it uh, uh, you got to know that uh, kind of what Malcolm or what uh, Martin pulled off was was orders of magnitude just just heavier. Not not everybody does that. Not everybody could do it. Not everybody would do it. But I like the articulation that, that Malcolm added in terms of like, you know, you push and I, I got to push back a little bit. And I this, you know, the days of yes, y'all and are, are, are done. So, you know. Well, let's go back to MMA for the next question. So it's Anderson Silva or John Jones? Uh, I'm going to have to go with, I know you have a, a personal preference for Anderson, but uh, I just wrote a piece. This guy's writing a book and I, he asked me to contribute 500 words to it about John Jones. And um, I, I do a comparison between John Jones and Daniel Cormier. And I do it along the lines of the old Testament with Cain and Abel um, with uh, interesting enough with Cormier being Cain and, and uh, uh John being being able, um, except the story ends very differently than it does in the biblical text. I think that um, I, I think we are in the midst of witness. There's a strong possibility that after uh, Israel Adesanya and John Jones cease fighting, that I'll probably cease paying attention to, to mixed martial arts. But these guys are both on some, this is some Achilles level, Hercules level, touched by the gods uh, le- level level things. And, and, and f- fundamentally, there's something that Anderson Silva said that was really revealing. And he said, it, it, fun, he, 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 
he gave credence to the line he, he, that the heavy, what is that line about? Heavy is a heavy is a head that wears the crown, that it was just, it wasn't the diminution of his skills or anything, but it was just the rigors of being touched by God that, that kind of wore him out. Whereas with John Jones, you don't see any of that. And he's had his troubles outside the cage, but that's, that's traditional. You know, people forget that the, the, the labors of Hercules were essentially post-release punishments because he flipped out and killed a bunch of people. So the gods were like, okay, okay, to make up for that, you have to like do these labors. So uh, it, it might happen that if you put, you know, jet fuel in a human vessel, that it has a hard time functioning on a human, on a human level. But I think that John Jones, I mean, we're all waiting to see him become human again um, by clearly easily, most easily by losing, but I don't see that happening in the short term. Um, but I, I'd like to be there when it, it happens. Um, and I've interviewed him before and he's a little bit churlish and uh, a little bit touchy, thin skin, but it is clear to me that he is very much connected to a certain type of greatness that doesn't come along often. Oh, that was, that was, that was an essay unto itself. Thank you for that. L last question. Um, Stuyvesant or Stanford? Oh, Stuyvesant. Stuyvesant. I, I, I hated Stanford. <laughs> I really did. <laughs> I, I, it, 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 you know, um, but you have to understand the context that, that when I got to Stanford, right? When I got to Stanford, it was 1980 and it was the beginning of the Reagan revolution. And I was going to school with a student body that was largely drawn from California. And the way California schools are structured, that meant that I was going to school with people who didn't or didn't know or had dealt with in any significant numbers, black folks at all. And my, my, one of my, my roommates was from Oregon <laughs> and, you know, they asked us to introduce ourselves. Yeah. You know, in the freshman dorm. And he tells a story about how he and his, his, his brother and his uncle would dress in orange suits and they would get in their Cadillac and drive around Portland with the lights off. And then they would hit raccoons and stun them and then put them in a burlap sack in the back and then take them home and cook them over the, fr uh, uh, in the, in the, the fireplace at, at home. And I look at this room of white folks and I can, I can see that they're all buying this completely preposterous story. And I look at my roommate, who actually was my best man, my first marriage. I look at him and he's looking at me like, they're buying it. I mean, of course, I mean, he, you know, you know, and he never, he never disabused him of the notion that, uh, that, you know, black folks in Oregon don't hunt raccoons with Cadillacs. <laughs> he, he just never did. He never thought it was necessary. So, um, so it was a Reagan revolution. I was dealing with people mostly from California who hadn't dealt with African-American. And then the black folks I met at Stanford in 1980 were also nuts too, to a certain degree. I mean, all the black, the black friends I had at Stanford were, were from New York, DC, or Chicago. Um, I just, it's just something about California that was making people crazy back then. So it was, it was, it was it, at one point a friend got angry with me. He goes, you, you're complaining all the time. You know, these are the best years of your life. You don't have to work. You're surrounded by the greatest number of people your own age. And, you know, you should appreciate it while you can. And he and I are still friends. And I said, you know, and now that I'm almost 59, I can tell you that Stanford, those were the worst four years of my life. <laughs> Everything from that point on, it's all been gravy. Uh, before then, all gravy. That four-year period was very tough. So. Very interesting. Ian, 
Well, Eugene, so, I mean, if, you know, if, if Stanford was the, f- the worst four years of your life, I mean, your, your journey has just been fascinating. So as you think about your next 30, 40 trips around this earth, how do you think about your future? What, 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 what's, your, what's your legacy going to be? You, you've had such a remarkable time. Well, I mean, I think the goal is to do, to do um, less of what I don't like and more of what I really like. Um, and insofar as that's possible, every day that's more the case than, than, than not the case. Um, I mean, writing ultimately, um, I've got, a, you know, I've done what, three or four books, um, and I find that to be a really enjoyable exercise. We're right in the r- middle of uh, adding a choir uh, to the new Oxbow record. Um, and then I've got a side project with a bunch of Italian musicians, another band, and that record is slated to come out in the next uh, eight months called, uh, uh, the name of the band is Boonwell. Um, and, uh, and ultimately, I think, you know, in, the, in terms of uh, retirement from day-to-day, nine-to-five living, I see myself settling outside of this country. Um, I've, you know, I've, by virtue of being in a band and touring all over, I think I've been to every state in America with the exception of Alaska. I, th- I think Alaska is the only one I have not been to. Um, and, you know, fine country. I, I'm kind of done with it. <laughs> um, and wow. I've also, I've also toured a lot in Europe and, uh, and Asia as well. And, um, so whether it's, uh, and you know, my kids are all, three of my kids are all, um, I've got two who are still in college. One has graduated from college and my youngest who we've heard screaming in the background is about seven. She in a few days is seven months old. Uh, but when you have one kid whose mother is European, you know, traveling is uh, specifically to Europe is not that difficult and probably desirous um, at some point. So I remember looking at uh, architectural review had this, uh, piece on writers in their nooks <laughs> and they were you know they showed norman mailer out in cape cod this wonderful you know wind-strewn beach house where he his sunny nook where he was writing and at the time i was at nikon and my writing nook was my desk i had to share my my cubicle space with a building column which i chose because it made getting into the office difficult um and so if i was working on something that was non-work related like uh, it was at the time my novel you know i could kind of write my novel a little bit you know on my lunch break without people looking over my shoulder and i go this is my writing nook so ultimately I, I see myself in the, in the Norman Mailer version, even though I remember Bukowski once said, and I, I think about this constantly, he said that nobody that was worth a damn ever wrote in peace. So all these writers looking to write in peace, yeah, you're not going to get that, but, uh, um, and I don't, don't need it, but um, I'd like to spend more time doing that and less time um, doing stuff I don't like. So. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. Well, as we come to the close, I would love, you know, as you've now looked back in your life and, and this idea, you want to do more of what you like. Talk to us about uh, Daryl or talk to Daryl. You know, as, as you know, Nike and I created the Invisible Man really as a vehicle for uh, all of us who've had a journey as black men have faced all sorts of challenges, sometimes succeeded, sometimes not. 
you know, but what have we learned on that journey? And as you think about a 16-year-old black kid living in forgotten USA today, an imaginary urban city, hearing all the messages that you think that he's probably hearing, what would you say to him? You know, what would you, what's the, what's the counsel you would have so that Daryl can do the things that he does like and not do the things that he does not want to do? I, I remember um, somebody had, uh, was talking about a uh, special forces guy and had, you know, um, seen lots of military action in places, very dangerous places. And he said one thing that he had learned is that uh, movement is life, right? So hunkering down in a place, your bad things happen to you are just an eventuality. Um, and I understand, I understand the lure uh, uh, of, of the neighborhood. Um, you know, it could be dysfunctional. They could be, but it's, but it's your dysfunction. But the reality of it is my take when I finally got out of this country to visit other places, I think I hadn't left, in a, I mean, outside of the Caribbean. Um, I hadn't, I, I think the first time I got to, to out of the, like Europe um, was 1990. And there's just something, you know, Eudora Welty said it best, you know, travel is, is broadening. But uh, I don't say you have to go to Europe. I don't say you have to go to the Caribbean even, but you got to get out of your community. And the only regret I have, people say, oh, you know, what would you, your message to the youth be? What would you, I, I say, I think about my, my younger days and I have one regret and that regret is that I didn't work harder. Um, you know, your sense of time is very different when you're, when you're 16. Um, and when I think about the, um, almost the, 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 uh, the panic fuel drive to succeed that I had in my, in my twenties and my thirties, you know, because there's no intergenerational wealth necessarily. Right. So it's like, there is no safety net. There was, you know, if, if I couldn't pay, you know, I, if I couldn't figure out a way to pay to Stanford myself, I, I was going to have to go back to Brooklyn college. Right. Um, and if I couldn't make it pay after college, I was going to, there was no place for me to go really. You know, I, you have to, um, you have to get out and, and and uh, it, it just get out and get away. And I think one of the best ways to do it, a friend of mine, uh, I think I spoke to him earlier, uh, to one of the engineers, he, um, yeah, he studied to be an engineer, but he also learned how to be a mechanic <laughs> because his plan was always to escape, escape this country. And he goes, people always need to have their cars fixed. And, you know, if I can't make it work some other place, I can work, uh, you know, I can study in Germany, do the research I want on quantum mechanics and work at the Audi shop. I can easily do that, you know. Um, and I have a stepbrother, uh, ex-stepbrother at this point, I think he's passed on, um, who didn't really make it through high school. Things weren't working too well for him. I think he was having some, you know, mental health issues. And, but one thing he did do and have was he learned, he had it learned to trade. You know, he learned how to fi fix cars. So unfortunately he didn't get out though. So, you know, but you have to change your, your base of operations. And when I look at my neighborhood in Flatbush, the one I, I grew up in, and now, you know, the benefit of Facebook, I can see, you know, and it was a healthily middle-class neighborhood, you know, there were the sons, sons and daughters of construction workers, bank presidents, 
you know, uh, academics, um, doctors, lawyers, but also cab drivers and, and construct, you know, construction workers. And uh, nobody lives on the block anymore, um, but they've all gone on to, you know, different, interesting, varied careers, and they've all moved. Um, the ones who didn't move, actually, sadly enough, a lot of them, um, and I say a lot, I mean, at least three of them have, have passed on. Um, so you got to move. Um, and, and you got to get busy. You know, I knew a cat uh, from uh, a Haitian guy I used to work with and uh, Janus, uh, Janus was his name. And he, dude, had like three jobs, three or four jobs. And they weren't great jobs. We were, I was a cashier at a fast health food store in high school and he was an adult male, but that was one of his jobs. And he had two other jobs. He slept about three or four hours a night and was work. That's 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 hustle it's like if that's what i got to do to be able to create a situation for myself where i'm not going to be miserable then i got to do it and uh, there was no it was like well this is shameful yeah screw your shame you know what the chinese a friend of mine was in china he said oh, they had this great saying in Hainan islands and i go what is it and he said uh, don't laugh at the prostitute laugh at the poor person i go oh, that's it's kind of hard for the poor people <laughs> but you know the idea was that you know you've got to be fruitfully engaged i guess and uh otherwise uh, there's there's actually no hope really right wow well eugene thank you for your words of wisdom a life well lived and still a lot more to do uh, yeah thank you for joining us on this episode of the invisible men uh, if any of our viewers want to see any prior episodes, uh, please go to www.invisible.men uh, if you want to check out any of our other amazing examples. But Eugene, thank you very much for joining us uh, today. Like you, any uh, parting words? Yes, well, I'll say uh, I think this episode is our densest. And so I think uh, our viewers, this is a, this is a two-watch episode. You're not going to get everything out of it, viewers, until you, until you listen to our brother at least twice. And, uh, you know, that advice for Daryl is good for me too, brother. So I appreciate it. And congratulations on the new baby. Send yeah, me a thank you. Oh, I will. I will. And then also you should uh, check out the Eugene S. Robinson dot substack dot com. I decided to start a newsletter because um, oh. um, there was there was a room. Uh, I mean, there were pieces that I uh, that I couldn't get into Ozzy because they were like, uh, this is a little too edgy. <laughs> this, too, <laughs> this is a little this is a little this is a little rough. And uh, and so I go, they said, you can do whatever you want with it. So I go, OK, well, maybe I'll start a. I got it. I'm going to start a newsletter called Look What You Made Me Do. Um, so I know that catchphrase. Well, I'll be signing up most definitely. There you go. There you go. Right. There you go. Okay. Well, Eugene, thank you. And, and thank you, our viewers, to watching another episode of The Invisible Men. Thank you for watching another episode of The Invisible Men. You can find other episodes at the AEI podcast channel on YouTube or the website invisible.men, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. 